Hello and welcome to another episode of This Is What Democracy Looks Like, a podcast about policies that could deepen democracy. Each week we welcome a guest to teach us about a policy that could help extend more power to more people in more ways, that could increase our voice in the forces that govern our lives, that could help us co-create our shared world. I'm your host, Pete Davis, director of the Democracy Policy Network. This week, we're talking criminal legal reform with Alec Karakatsanis. Let's go. Sing me a song. You break branches fold. Oh, the winter's been long in the summer of growing old. Alec Karakatsanis is a leading civil rights lawyer and advocate. He is the founder of of Civil Rights Corps, an organization that advances high-impact litigation and advocacy to empower communities to change the unjust legal system. He is a former public defender himself and recently is the author of Usual Cruelty, The Complicity of Lawyers in the Criminal Injustice System. Alec, thank you so much for coming on. This is what democracy looks like. Hi, Pete. It's great to be here. So great to have you here. Alec, we want to get into the weeds of all your amazing work. But before we do, I always like letting listeners hear a bit about how you got into this work. What was your journey into fighting the criminal injustice system? You are a lawyer yourself, and you have decided to not be complicit in the criminal injustice system. So I'd love to hear about the path to that. To be clear, I think I am still quite complicit in a lot of the things that happen that are horrific in the criminal punishment bureaucracy in our legal system more generally, because I think it's when you have systems that are this structurally unjust and so linked to capitalism and white supremacy, it's really impossible to be an actor within them without some measure of complicity in the atrocities that they commit. But for me, I got really interested in this current work, I think, when I was a public defender. And I was representing people who were too poor to afford a lawyer, first in Alabama, and then in Washington, D.C. And the things I saw every single day in that job really shaped the course of the rest of my career. I saw unspeakable suffering. There are 500,000 human beings in jail cells every single night in this country, the vast majority of them because they can't pay cash bail. And night after night, sitting in jail and talking to people about what it's like to, to be separated from their children, to be in an environment that is covered with feces and blood and mucus and mold and urine, to be in a place where you're at constant risk of sexual or physical assault, Deprived of the very basic things that we each take for granted each day, like exercise and fresh air and sunlight, going to the theater or watching a movie, all of the things that, that sort of make life what it is for, for many people who aren't incarcerated. And, and talking to people and watching them go through that every single day got me really interested in how it can be that a bureaucracy like this can metastasize and how the indifference to this suffering, to the tens of millions of families that, that go through it every single year. How does that indifference function and work? How is it produced? How are the rest of us taught not only to normalize and rationalize that kind of cruelty, but to call it justice and to put it in a system that we call the justice system? And, and so I became fascinated with the ways in which this giant bureaucracy was actually being used, not to quote, keep people safe, end quote, or, or, or to protect people from some kind of danger, but actually to produce and reproduce 
and justify distributions of wealth and property and hierarchy in our society that, that are distributed along class and racial lines. And it was the link between this country's history of white supremacy and distribution of wealth on the basis of race and, and capitalism more, more broadly. It was the desire to try to draw some of those connections for people that led to the current work that we do, which is much more systemic in nature and focused on changing very basic narratives for people about what the criminal system does and why it does it. What I love about how you talk about this, and it's reflected in the title of your recent book, Usual Cruelty, is that in every way you talk about this, you're saying we have this amendment against cruel and unusual punishment, but almost all the punishment in our criminal punishment system, as you call it, is cruel and unusual. It's not human, and it's way worse than it appears with the smarmy words that we use uh, to describe it. I'd love to hear a bit about how you think about uh, ripping off the mask of the kind of civil ways we talk about this criminal punishment bureaucracy. I think it's absolutely vital because much of the population has been sort of lulled into complacency and complicity through a very concerted propaganda effort on behalf of punishment bureaucrats. When I say punishment bureaucrats, not just the obvious people that do have a bad public reputation in some respects, like the private prison company executives and all of the large corporate interests that, that play a role in these systems. But I mean, every single actor within the system, like the cops, the cop unions, the probation officers, the clerks, the judges, the prosecutors, the, probate, the parole officers, the jail guards, the jail guard unions, and all of these sort of attendant functionaries who combine to create this metastasized bureaucracy that has very particular interests, and those interests, like any bureaucracy, are in constant expansion. And then at every single stage of that bureaucracy, those bureaucrats have managed to get increasing numbers of the rest of the population invested in the perpetuation of this assembly line. So, for example, there are companies that make the handcuffs and the tasers and the bulletproof vests and the guns and the police cars and the surveillance equipment that's increasingly used by cops, and the grenade launchers, and so on and so forth. And there are companies that have privatized every single aspect of public jails, including most jails now don't even let you see or hug or visit your loved ones. And why is that? A couple of large corporations, like Securus and Global Telling, have essentially bribed um, local jails and said, if you get rid of in-person visits, people will use phone calls more. And since we have these monopoly contracts on the phones, we'll share some of that revenue with you for these exorbitant phone rates. And in that way, many millions of people are now separated completely from their children and forced to pay to even talk to their families. It's this monetization of human contact. All of this is, is, is part of an effort to train people into thinking that these systems are necessary to keep us safe. And what I like to do is talk about these systems and expose the incredible cruelty to offer a little bit of a different perspective, uh, a perspective that these systems aren't keeping us safe. They are traumatizing, not only the people that go through the system, but the people who love people who go through the system. When you think about it in that term, in that way, we're talking about 50 to 100 million people in this country who are traumatized, whose wealth is extracted. If you think about the bail system, for example, which is standard fare in every drama show on TV, and everyone just sort of expects the money bail system. It's actually a relatively new phenomenon. I and mean, it's exploded in, since the rise of mass incarceration. And it extracts about $2 billion of wealth from black and brown and poor communities every single year in this country. And that has been totally normalized. So what I like to do is talk about the cruelty of the bail system, 
what does it mean to separate someone from um, her school or her home, her job, community, her loved ones? What does it mean to tell someone's mother that, uh, or father that they have to come up with $14,000 in cash if they don't want their young child to be kept in a cage? And so I, I think it's very important because essentially every other aspect of our media and legal culture are telling us that all of this is just how it is. It's just the justice system. It's just normal. We just do things like fail. And, and, and what I like to do is work with people who are directly impacted, organizers, artists, musicians, poets, people from various religious denominations, to find different ways of talking about the cruelty that we are all inflicting in our name every single day in 3,163 local jails and 1,850 state prisons. And to talk about it in a way that peels back this veneer of normal justice and that exposes it for what it is, which is the most brutal human caging apparatus that any modern society in world history has created. We are going to get in later in the episode into how we can piece by piece dismantle this. But I want to linger a little bit more on how you see the state of the movement against this. I feel like we're at a low plateau in the criminal legal reform movement. So, you know, the new Jim Crow comes out in 2010. It slowly over the decade becomes more and more popular to the point that all like a Republican president is talking sometimes in in some of the surface level terms of the criminal legal reform movement. And we've normalized the idea that probably we're going to legalize pot. Probably we should get nonviolent pot users out of prison. Probably we should think about how to have a few more diversionary opportunities away from prisons. And probably we should have a few more kind of progressive prosecutors and regulate private prisons a little bit more. That has succeeded, but it is a very low plateau relative to where we're trying to get to. And I'd love to hear of where you think we are, how we can use that initial momentum that have gotten us to the low plateau to move past it, to not say mission accomplished. Where do you see the movement right now and where do we go from here? This is such an important question. It's actually why I felt the need to write the book, Usual Cruelty, and, and what I spend you know, the, the whole first essay really getting at. We are at, a, I think, a very dangerous plateau. And we're at risk of falling entirely off the other side. Because I think that many of the people who style themselves now as, quote unquote, criminal justice reformers, or who are otherwise promoting certain tweaks to the mass incarceration bureaucracy, are actually punishment bureaucrats who have themselves created and perpetuated these systems. And what they're trying to do is maybe shave off some of the most grotesque flourishes of this system of pain and cruelty, but preserve the underlying infrastructure and architecture. And not only to preserve it, but to expand it in key ways. Uh, let me give you just two examples that I think illustrate sort of the danger of where we are. The first is cash bail. There's been an enormous movement across the country um, as the result of the death of Sandra Bland, the death of Khalif Browder, a bunch of the litigation that, that has been done of striking down cash bail systems. Everyone now, at least in, in policy circles, seems to be recognizing the senselessness and cruelty of the cash bail system. However, many of the so-called progressive reformers who are promoting responses to the cash bail system are promoting things like the increased use of racially biased risk assessment algorithms, who are promoting the thing, things like increased pretrial detention, increased pretrial surveillance supervision. And I caution us 
Um, to think about what happened the first time we had a federal bail reform movement. It was also led by elite lawyers and prominent liberals. And it started in the 1960s and, and went throughout the 70s. And finally, in the early 80s, they managed to pass the Federal Bail Reform Act, which got rid of cash bail in federal courts. On the day that act passed, about 24% of all people charged with federal crimes were detained just because they were poor. Today, 37 years later, the pretrial detention rate has tripled to 75%. And so we now have three out of every four people, even though they're, they're presumed innocent, who are charged with federal crimes are detained prior to trial. And that was all done in the name of a progressive bail reform movement. The second um, Wait, what was the before we go to the second? What was the mechanics of that? So, just so our listeners understand, it was that they stopped using cash bail at the federal level, but they still held people and just said, "You can't even pay to get out." Exactly, and I think this is something we'll get into when we get into the weeds of the bail discussion. But one of the the common moves by punishment bureaucrats and politicians is to say, "Okay, we'll stop jailing you because you can't pay, and we'll just create more and more reasons to jail you without money." And so the federal um, act that passed dramatically expanded the power of federal prosecutors and judges to order people detained without bail. And it, in fact, even created a presumption that every single person in any drug felony should be detained. And, and that dramatically increased attention. And side note, that the, the people who were detained in the 19, early 1980s before this act were less disproportionately poor and less disproportionately black and brown than they are today. And so we not only dramatically increased pretrial detention, but dramatically increased the racial disparities associated with it. The same is true now when you think about bail reform across the country, states and local governments are trying to give judges more and more power to detain people. They're also doing something else that's fascinating. Local, so I mentioned before the for-profit money bail industry. That industry isn't stupid. It sees the writing on the wall. And so it's trying to morph its business model in combination with private prison companies and the private telecom companies. They are now wanting to be not the people that send you the bail bond, but the ones that if you're released, they sell you a GPS monitoring device and they sell you a drug test. They sell you a monthly a payment uh, uh, plan. And so the same corporate interests are also wanting to make the same money off the same populations. They just want to change the label on their business. The second overall example that I think is very telling is the issue, one of the most common criminal legal reforms over the last few years since the murder of Michael Brown and Ferguson has been police body cameras. You even see a lot of liberals all around the country arguing for increased police body cameras. This is fascinating to me because the body camera thing was actually originally something the police unions proposed and police officers wanted. It was a reform that police departments were begging for years, but they couldn't get the local government funding for it. So what do they do? They used high profile instances of their own police brutality to get local liberals and Democrats uh, in particular to, to demand that police be given this incredible surveillance technology. Something to keep in mind about body cameras is they're outward facing. Police control them. They're much more likely to be used as evidence against poor people and black people in court than they are ever against evidence of police misconduct. And so what we've seen is this incredible situation. And now, by the way, police are executing the final stage of this plan, which is to link their body cameras to huge new facial recognition databases that they have. And so what we've actually done is in the name of reform, instead of asking fundamental questions like, why are the police in these neighborhoods? What are they doing? Why were they brutalizing this person in the first place? 
Why were they arresting Eric Garner for cigarettes in the first place? Why were they accosting Michael Brown? We're, we're not asking deep questions. Like, what is the purpose and function of police? And does it keep us safe? We're, instead, we've given police the resources that they need to essentially have our entire daily lives surveilled, recorded, and linked to increasingly um, sophisticated facial recognition databases, which are promoted by companies like Amazon and Palantir. So all of these things are connected. And I, and I, I think it's very important that we as a criminal justice reform movement identify some very key principles for what would be a good reform and what is not a good reform. And so with the, the same people that created all of these injustices don't just reproduce them with a different thing. Amen. Final question before we get into the weeds. What paths forward generally, not like what policies we need to fight for, but what strategies give you hope? I've seen your civil rights court does high impact litigation. There's been a movement in the last five years to get reform minded prosecutors and DAs. There are fights for state policy and there are others that say we just need federal policy and just need to have a large national movement that solves this top down instead of city by city. Others say it's only when we have cultural change and we change how local news is reported and Hollywood needs to get on board. Others say all of the above. What if someone was looking at the next 20 years of this fight, what paths do you think are promising? What paths do you think are dead ends? I'm glad you asked this question before we get into the weeds of policy, because while I think there are certain basic principles that I want to outline for what would constitute a good policy, and that largely center around what is going to shrink the size and power of the policing and punishment bureaucracies and what's going to actually invest in communities, I think it's a, another very critical question is, how do we build the power that is necessary to get those good policies? So we don't have that power right now. The country and, and most state and local governments are still run by powerful elite interests that will not dramatically shrink the size of the police and punishment bureaucracies and invest in things that actually help people and communities until and unless we build that power. And so the thing that, that gives me the most hope all across the country, particularly um, since the uprisings of this past summer after the death of George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery. But the, the, the thing that gives me hope is that there is a, finally, and this is, by the way, the result of very intentional organizing over the years since the murder of Michael Brown and even prior to that, there is incredible organizing and energy now around building a movement that is going to create the power necessary to dismantle these systems. And that is where I see um, some of the promise in, in some of the things that you mentioned, like the progressive prosecutor movement. It's not in the actual content of what those prosecutors are doing. It's in the organizers that come together and the campaigns that are led, bringing people together to, 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 to build a political infrastructure and political power that can actually confront these systems. So I think that is the most exciting thing to me. It's that organizers are coming together all over the country, whether it's in mutual aid organizations, whether it's court watch programs, community bail funds, campaigns for certain local elections like Measure J in Los Angeles, which is an incredible effort led by a number of people, including the Justice LA Coalition, which is going to actually require a certain percentage of the local budget to be spent on non-carceral alternatives. These are all examples of a growing movement where people are coming together and organizing in a way that is going to be a fundamentally different local and national uh, political force. And that, I think, is where we have to go. Everything that we do has to be focused on changing the narrative and building power in communities. And I think the reason some of this stuff has been so successful is it's 
really been led by a lot of the people who are most directly impacted this, by this systems and not lawsuits and fancy lawyers. I, I think there is a place for lawyers and lawsuits, like what we do, but we're never going to be able to look to the court system, which for hundreds of years has been an institution designed to preserve status quo distributions of power. We're never going to look to that system to be an agent of social change. It can play a small role in a broader movement strategy, right? to help bring attention to particular things at particular moments and lift up certain voices and stories. But what really excites me is the organizing work that's being done all over the country. Amen to that. And now we move from strategy and we say all of the following in the exact same spirit and caveat, which is the policies are necessary, but not sufficient. The policies alone will not set us free, but we need to have the ideas that when we come to power and when we have opportunities, what is it that we should fight for? So that's the weeds we're getting into now. I want to kind of walk through different areas of mass decarceration, of prison abolition, of dismantling the punishment bureaucracy, and get your thoughts in the weeds on what is worth fighting for especially at the state level. So let's begin with this question of money bail. So I've seen all these, I was almost thinking I shouldn't ask him about this because it's already, the train's already left the station. All these blue states are having money bail conversations and there isn't much more agitation needing to be done. But from what I've heard from you so far, this is something we should be paying close attention to. So let's start with that. What should we be fighting for at the state level with regard to ending money bail? There's so much here, and I've done, obviously, a lot of thinking about this so much so that I have trouble limiting my remarks to, to anything brief, but I'll try. I think that the number one overarching principle for all of the stuff that we're going to talk about is asking yourself a question. Is this increasing or decreasing the size of the punishment bureaucracy? Because if something increases the size of the punishment bureaucracy, we should oppose it. And if it decreases the size of the punishment bureaucracy, we should be in favor of it, right? Uh, as a general matter, the more you increase the size and resources and discretion and power of control and punishment bureaucrats and the bureaucracy, the more power they have because the more resources are flowing into them and the more power they have, it's like a one-way ratchet up. And so we need to ratchet that down. And the money bail system- I'd like to just make a point here. This is like the Grover Norquist tax pledge of the <laughs> left. The Grover Norquist used to tell right-wingers, whatever you're doing that increases the size of government, don't do. Number one rule, don't grow it. We, all, we obviously don't like all of that, but it seems like that's a very great, simple rule. So I'll just say that. It um, is the uh, most important rule when dealing with police and prisons. Wonderful. So Keep going. We don't want to build new jails. We don't want to build new prisons. We don't want to add police officers. We don't want to add the police budgets. These things are already so dramatically out of step with our own historical expenditures on those things and with the expenditures of any other country in the world that it, 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 we look ridiculous, frankly, to other countries in terms of the amount of resources that we're already spending on human caging and armed government bureaucrats. So with the money bail system, I think the critical thing to pay attention to is dramatically reducing the discretion of judges and cops to make custodial arrests and to detain people after arrest. So it's not simply enough to eliminate money bail if the judges and the cops still have the tools to order you detained. So what we need to do is what we call in the bail space, limited detention nets. And this detention net just means who is eligible to be detained. And the New York organizers and advocates and public defenders had an enormous success in the New York bail laws that passed most recently because they were able to create pretty robust detention nets. 
eliminating the discretion, the power, the ability of judges, police, and prosecutors to even ask for detention or money bail by variety, the vast majority of cases. And things like that are reforms that shrink the bureaucracy because you don't let that bureaucracy, no matter what goes on in any particular case, you don't let them detain a person unless um, they're charged with certain types of offenses. Is what we really want that net to be just basically someone who immediately is a danger to public safety? And that's judged by a very rigorous standard of what danger to public safety means. Is that what we're trying to shrink it down to? Because I assume someone, people always go to the extreme end of the spectrum when they're nervous about reform. And so they're thinking, we just arrested the spree killer. I definitely want to hold him detained until his trial. And and that person would be eligible detention under the New York reforms, for example. Many of the organizers and activists that are coming up with very detailed bail, and we have, by the way, a model bail law on our website, civilrightscore.org. And there's a a coalition in in California of groups that are working on what I think is going to be the the strongest and best bail policy that's ever been unveiled. But I think the key there is, yes, limiting pretrial detention to only those cases where there is such an imminent risk that there's no other way of handling it. And reducing the discretion of judges and prosecutors and police officers to even ask these questions in cases that don't involve allegations of that kind of serious conduct. So this is a, it's a difficult area of tension between abolition on the one hand, which many of us support, and policies that are going to dramatically reduce the harm and the power of the carceral state in the short and medium term, and policies that are putting us on the road abolition. It's a lot of these organizers will will say abolition doesn't necessarily mean getting rid of all police and jail cells tomorrow. What it means is starting to divest from the punishment bureaucracy and and divest in ways that that keep people um, safe, but using those resources to invest in building the kinds of structures in our society and relationships between people that make make the carceral bureaucracy eventually completely unnecessary. And so Yes, to your your question, what some of the best bail bills do is they do not permit judges to even consider detention unless the person is charged with and poses an imminent threat to some other person's safety that can't be otherwise mitigated. And last question on money bail. What should state advocates look out for as, say, red herring reforms or just surface level reforms? A lot of states are currently working on money bail, but you're saying like this ideal reform is only in New York or coming in California. What are the types of things we should keep an eye out for as that is not enough? I think New York is far from ideal, just to be clear, but I I think it's the best one that's happened so far because it adopted some of these principles. I would say the things to be on the lookout for are you want a, a limited detention net. You also want to forbid the use of electronic monitoring and GPS monitoring in any case that doesn't fall into the detention net because home detention and electronic monitoring is the wave of the future for punishment bureaucrats. That's what they want. They want to dramatically expand. In Illinois, for example, after our our, our lawsuit and incredible advocacy led by the Chicago Community Bond Fund and other organizations, the jail population in Cook County went down by 40% a couple of years ago. And the sheriff's budget went up by 27%. And thousands of more people were put on electronic GPS monitoring with every single movement of theirs monitored. And this is what Michelle Alexander has called the next wave of e-carceration. And, and the next new Jim Crow. So whatever we do on bail reform, 
we have to prevent the corporate interests that that currently dominate the telecom and jail and private prison industries from executing on their business model of converting all of those profits to dramatically increased electronic surveillance and GPS monitoring. Another thing is we need to dramatically reduce the reliance of local governments on various fees and fines associated with the bail system, just totally eliminate and abolish all of the influence of money in this area. And so if, you're, if your local and state bills don't shrink the detention net and increase the number of people who are immediately eligible for site and release and not required to be custodially arrested, if they don't limit the use of GPS monitoring and other forms of pretrial surveillance and intrusion, and if they don't limit the, the, the fees and other sort of monetary elements associated with money bail system, then they're not real reform. Amen. You have this uh, phrase you talk about a lot and Civil Rights Court talks about a lot, which is the criminalization of poverty. We know what that means in the abstract, that it's expensive to be poor, you get arrested a lot more when you're poor, but in a very concrete sense, where the rubber hits the road on the punishment bureaucracy, how does the criminalization of poverty work, and how can we start to deconstruct that? When I got to Ferguson shortly after the murder of Michael Brown, the city of Ferguson averaged 3.6 arrest warrants per household, almost all of them for a Black person almost all of them for unpaid debt. And as I did my investigation into Ferguson and started partnering with amazing local organizations like Arch City Defenders in St. Louis, um, St. Louis University School of Law Legal Clinics, what I learned was that this was happening all over St. Louis County. And I had already seen it happening all over Alabama, Louisiana, Tennessee. And after we did the Ferguson case, we started looking all over the country and it turned out the worst place in the country for this stuff is California. And it turned out that- A blue trifecta state. That's right. And that in Texas, 500,000 people spend a night in jail every single year to sit out debts that they owe from tickets. So the more I researched it and the more I looked at it, and and there's a really good book on this called Punishment Without Crime by Alexander Nadepov, who's a professor at Harvard Law School. The vast bulk of what the current American legal system does is very low-level cases that are designed to generate revenue for local municipal government. And because of who the police target and what neighborhoods elite people choose to have the police patrol in, the vast bulk of this is coming at the expense of poor people and disproportionately people of color. So we don't even have any sense of how many tens of millions of such cases are happening every year in the U.S. Professor Nadepov tries to to count on what municipal courts are doing, but because most states don't even keep relevant records, we have no idea the scope of it. All we know is that it's billions and billions of dollars and tens of millions of cases. And the common thread is how do we use our police department and prosecutor's office and our court system as a way of generating revenue? And how do we generate that revenue off of the people who we can exploit, who won't fight back, who won't file lawsuits, who won't have lawyers to hire to fight what they're doing? And so they end up targeting the poorest people in our society. And in case after case that I've litigated and that we've won all over the country challenging the constitutionality of these systems has been against local governments that are trying to use their criminal punishment bureaucracy in conjunction with privatized debt collectors and private probation companies and others to extract people's wealth. And when we talk about the criminalization of poverty, one of the things we're talking about is the, the use of fines and fees. And we are, are trying to abolish as much as possible the, the linkages between the criminal system 
and the extraction of its wealth. And what do you have any kind of promising alternatives to this? Are there ideas out there on banning fines and fees outright? just as a way of enforcing things, having fines and fees, but the money doesn't go to the state government or the city government so that no one has an invest vested interest in fines and fees. What is the concrete answer to this? There are many specific proposals, depending on the type of fines or fees. The one issue we've been really involved with, and we've been part of leading this thing called the Free to Drive Coalition, is the fact that there are 11 million people in this country right now, as we're talking, whose driver's license is suspended, not because they're a bad driver but because they owe some kind of debt to the courts. And driving on a suspended license is actually the most common criminal charge in many jurisdictions. So there's this link between fines and fees. And what's so outrageous is if you can't pay the, your debt, you can't drive. But in much of the country, if you can't drive, you can't get to work. And look, and at, so they call this the laptop divide. Most rich people are going to work on a laptop today, whereas most working class folks need to drive to work. Exactly. And so not only can't you take your kids to the doctor or to a park, park to play outside, but you can't get to work to make the money to pay off your debts that would allow you to get your license back. And so millions of very poor people in this country are faced with a pretty existential decision. Do I drive to try to make money I need for diapers and food or, and, and by driving, do I risk being arrested and then jailed on a criminal offense now of driving on a suspended license? Or do I just give up and, and sit at home and let the debt accumulate and not be able to provide for my family and starve? That is a very difficult decision that many of our clients have to make every single day. And that is a direct result of our fines and fees system. So I think on a broader level, we're certainly trying to, to figure out how to eliminate as many of these fines and fees as possible. And on all of these areas that you're gonna that you're you know gonna be asking me about, I imagine, I, I want to lift up this incredible movement called the Breathe Act. And the Breathe Act is being led by the movement for Black Lives. And it's the most ambitious, progressive, and comprehensive at reforming all of these issues that's really ever been attempted. And as of right now, it has over 150,000 local community co-sponsors. There's a federal Breathe Act. We have been really honored and privileged to, to support on the policy side, the creation of that act, and also the creation of state and local Breathe Acts, which is really exciting because there are local versions of all of these policies that, that divest from the punishment system, that invest in the things that pe people need to be safe. And I'll talk a little bit more about, as we go on, about what some of these things are, but one of the planks of this is obviously r removing the ability to use fees and fines to extract wealth from communities. Let's move on to public defenders' offices. Public defenders' offices classically overstuffed stuffed with cases. Many public defenders have to have the experience of meet them, greet them, and plead them with clients. What can we do for public defenders' offices? And would you consider increasing funding for public defenders' offices as part of increasing funding for the whole punishment bureaucracy? Or do you think that's actually an uh, exception because it's something that gives power to defendants? That is one of the most thorny and difficult issues. So this is the only one of the only areas in this field where, you know, organizers in, in local places that we've talked to have differing views on whether increasing funding for public defenders offices violates this cardinal rule of, of not increasing the size and structure, uh, size and power of the punishment bureaucracy. Um, what I will say, first of all, is the current system of indigent defense is catastrophically bad. There is essentially no meaningful 
representation for the vast majority of people who are charged with crimes in this country. And that is a fact. And much of the country doesn't even have public defenders. They have private court-appointed lawyers who get contracts from the judge. And it's a very crony, corrupt system, right? So the judge selects people who aren't going to make everyone else work very hard, who aren't going to put a lot of time and energy into the case, who are going to keep the assembly line running. And so I think a few things flow from my observation of indigent defense systems over the years in terms of policy change. Number one, we need to dramatically reduce the number of people that we are bringing into the criminal system. There is no conceivable way, even with substantial increases in funding to public defenders' offices, that we can provide a zealous, constitutionally adequate defense to even a small percentage of the people that are coming into the system. It's the same way that we couldn't even begin to do 11 million jury trials every year. We just don't have the infrastructure to bring that together. And that's why 95 to 99% of people, depending on the jurisdiction, are coerced into pleading guilty. Everybody knows that the constitutional rights that we you know, have in the Bill of Rights, like the right to a jury trial, like the right to a lawyer, they can't possibly exist in a system of mass incarceration that is jailing more people than any other society in the recorded history of the modern world relative to its population. So the, the first reform is dramatic decriminalization, dramatic reduction in the number of people who are arrested. Just to take one example, there is absolutely no reason to handle drug use and drug selling and the issue of drugs generally in the criminal legal system. And yet that is a huge percentage of all of the work that's being done in these systems. That, that taking away that right there and treating that as a public health issue with nurses and doctors and home health care workers and social workers and therapists and many other things that contribute that could address some of the reasons that people currently become addicted to drugs would be would go a long way. Another one of the huge um, expenditures of public defenders is on people who are houseless, right? The majority of people arrested in Portland, Oregon, for example, are houseless people every year. Huge numbers of people who are brought into the criminal legal system in every other jurisdiction are people who don't have a house. And providing safe places to live and social work services would actually be a much better way of, of addressing this problem than arresting and incarcerating and prosecuting and giving a public defender. So I think it remains to be seen as the short answer in terms of expanding. I think in most places that, that don't have public defenders offices, they're using this private court-appointed lawyer model that is far more expensive than typical public defenders because those lawyers bill large amounts of money by the hour, and you don't have the efficiencies uh, and economies of scale of working at a public defender office where you can share briefs and share filings and cover each other's work. So I think it's a tough call, but I would not advocate dramatic increases in expenditure on public defense. I would instead advocate as a first step, the dramatic reduction in, in the need for public defense. One more public defender question. I've seen some proposals for a, and again, everything on its own is small, but it adds up to something bigger. I've seen proposals for a defender general at the state level or elected public defenders. I sometimes call it the Kamala Harris problem, which is if you want to ascend in politics, becoming a DA because it's an elected office that's like a high profile uh, stepping stone in a county is a way a lot of promising young people want to go to who want to have a future in politics. 
equalizing public defenders by giving them a defender general at the state level or an elected people's defender might be a way to do that and help be another notch in the cultural change of saying it's not just prosecutors that are our superheroes here. What have you thought about proposals like that? They may seem fine as far as it goes. I don't think they're going to fundamentally alter the structure of this massive bureaucracy in the way that I, but I think I could see an argument for a defender general playing in a cultural change, sort of narrative role change. I think it's far more important to equalize salaries of public defenders and prosecutors and to do really material, tangible things that reduce their caseload and pay them equally to encourage the best and the brightest to be in that profession to signal that the state values them equally and to create the time and resources in public defenders in their, to actually participate in social movements. Because one of the problems now is that they're so busy, underpaid and overworked, they don't have the time and space to, to, to make systemic challenges, to meet and work with organizers, to work on policy campaigns. Like we're missing out on a whole untapped force of people who could help their clients tell their stories, who could organize, who could fight new jail plans, who could participate in so many ways. And, and they're not able to do it because being a public defender is just so overwhelming and devastating and crushing and, and you don't have the resources. And so I think material changes like like that would probably be better than, but, than the Defender General, but I, I certainly don't see a, a huge problem with the Defender General. Final in the weeds as we come to the end here, prosecutor oversight reform, reining them in. What can we do to put a check on prosecutors' offices? This is something I think about a lot because our organization has a couple of really landmark big class action lawsuits against prosecutors. And I've been working a lot on other forms of prosecutor misconduct. And obviously, I wrote a, a section of the book on this. I, I think that the there are very easy, obvious things. Like we should eliminate the absolute immunity that the Supreme Court gave to prosecutors. There is absolutely no reason why you should be unable to completely unable to sue a prosecutor when they commit misconduct in your case. The impunity that has resulted from absolute prosecutorial immunity is striking. I think also in terms of accountability, again, it, it, it's building these local movements that can hold prosecutors, that, that basically say to prosecutors, it used to be the case that you win elections by fear mongering, by running ads like the really important ad, right? Now you, you can only win an election because we have built so much power in our community by showing us how you're going to reduce incarceration and showing us what specific steps you're going to take. And, and that's where I think if you look just at the Manhattan DA race right now with the work that Vocal New York is doing and its court watch program and its other organizing, they have a scorecard now right, and a questionnaire where all of the candidates had to answer this questionnaire that, that shows what specific steps they're going to be accountable to if they win to reduce incarceration. And that is the product of years of public education and, and narrative building and, and organizing, and, and particularly by the people who work with vocal who are directly impacted by the system. And that's the kind of thing we need everywhere, right? Like clear, transparent structures of accountability that organizers are going to hold prosecutors to. And, and I think, so I think policy changes are one thing, but organizing and creating a much different accountability structure for prosecutors is something that's even more vital. We like ending these interviews with what is a model or a policy or a movement, something happening at the state or local level that is giving you hope? Our symbol is a seedling here at Deepin. And what is a seedling somewhere across the country that more people should be turned on to? I encourage everyone interested in these issues to check out 
Breathe Act. And you can look at, at the website, breatheact.org. And I think it's such a profound, fundamental shift in the culture that I don't know that we've really ever seen anything like it. And just to give you a sense of it, the, the basic framework of the act is divesting from punishment, investing in community, and, 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 and asks questions like, what would it mean to have a more holistic sense of safety that's non-carceral, non-punitive, community-driven, things like violence interruption, restorative and transformative justice, mentorship, basic things like street lights, theater programs, poetry, abuse prevention, non-911, like non-police 911 crisis response, support for survivors, like when, when, for people who survive violent crime, many of them say that the current punishment system doesn't do any good, doesn't help them. It, it, it further traumatizes the person that traumatized them and then shoots them back out into the society. And so the Breathe Act is thinking about things like, like financial independence, stable housing, abuse interruption, reparations for people that have survived. And another thing I think that's really hopeful and exciting about it is that it, it's asking about concrete investments and things like municipal governments are the, the biggest purchaser of laundry and food service and janitorial services and landscaping and universities, what would it look like if instead of giving those contracts to Aramont and other large corporations, they gave them to worker-owned co-ops that were owned by people who were formerly incarcerated, people in communities that are directly impacted? Why are these municipal governments and universities subsidizing the richest corporations in the world when they can actually build wealth and power and connection in people in their own community? Things like community land trust, public banking, which I know you're big on, social housing and other policies that can disrupt these harmful systems and increase holistic community safety. And the BREATHE Act is about creating a structure for state and local organizers to think through all of these policies together. So I really encourage people to check out what the Movement for Black Lives is doing with the BREATHE Act. I love it. And in some ways, it's like the Green New Dealification of this movement that we've been talking about, which is a giant, big movement that is an alternative way of doing things that's not micro policies but a huge framework that could transform this country alec karakatsanis thank you so much for coming on this is what democracy looks like people can find you on twitter and find out about your work at civilrightscore.org and buy the book usual cruelty thank you alec have a great day thank you pete